Welcome everybody to Franklin Covey's On Leadership Series, deep into our second year, had some fantastic conversations across our first series. Hope that you're subscribing. And if you've missed any of our previous interviews, dip back into them by visiting franklincovey.com, click on the On Leadership button, make sure you're subscribed to it. It allows you to go back into all the archives as well and consume them in any format that works best for you. We're on basically every podcast platform and you can find all the previous historical interviews at franklincovey.com as well. My name is Scott Miller and I'm honored to serve as your host and interviewer each week. You know, we really try to make sure that we're curating conversations across a broad array of experts, people who are academics, that are in not-for-profit organizations, in the federal government, military, you know, celebrities that have earned the right to talk about things that they've learned around leadership, best-selling authors, CEOs, and today we're delighted to have the co-author, Jay Papazan, of the number one Wall Street Journal best-selling book, The One Thing. Join us from Austin, Texas. Jay, welcome to On Leadership. Thanks for having me, Scott. I'm thrilled to be here. I mean, number one Wall Street Journal bestseller, not too shabby. The book is The One Thing, The Surprisingly Simple Truth Behind Extraordinary Results. You're the co-author with your colleague and friend, Gary Keller from Keller Williams. I think one of my favorite opening stories is how the book came into publication. Would you kind of recreate the setting of the meeting and how that kind of came down into the one thing of why the book could be so important. Take our listeners and viewers back to that meeting, if you will. Sure. Um, it happened, I want to say, in 2008. I sometimes get the dates a little off. Um, I was running our in-house university and created a new course with my team. And Gary wanted to take it home for the weekend to write a new introduction. And it was about uh, growing a small business um, big enough that you could afford your first um, executive assistant. And he came back with a short essay called The Power of One. It was about maybe 12 pages long. And we were editing it for the course. And I, I said just offhandedly, man, this feels like a book, Gary. And he said, I thought the same thing. And that was kind of the genesis. Um, he had a way of pursuing his life that was based around time blocking, about being super clear on his number one priority. and. That led to a summer of brainstorming around the book and about a four and a half year journey, because it was our first non-real estate title that we did together, where we really had to research it, um, fact check some of our assumptions, and that, that led to the one thing, the book. In, in fact, you know, Jay, the book is extraordinary. There's a reason why it's done so well, why it made it onto our wall, and why we invited you to come today, because I think it's, of all the books that I read, it's, it's inspirational and it's aspirational, but it's insanely practical. And I, I'm excited to get into the one thing methodology. You know, I read a lot of books for this interview series. I also host a podcast on iHeartRadio for Franklin Covey called Great Life, Great Career. And for that, I also read a lot of books. And I think, you know, there are certain books that hit you at the right time. Had this book hit me a year ago, I probably wouldn't have been ready for it. And had I read this book a year from now, it might have been too late for me because I, like most people, are kind of in the midst of making some, you know, important decisions around where I spend my time, right? I'm interviewing on this program weekly, the radio program. I just authored a book. I'm authoring a few more books. Uh, I'm in the process of pitching uh, a potential television program, and I really have got to be more deliberate around the one thing. So I'm going to use that example in a few minutes to have you coach me through how to decide your one thing. What I'd like to do first is talk about what you and your co-author talk 
or describe the six lies between you and success. And I'd love to spend just one minute on each of them before we get to the concept of the one thing. Let's run them through, through them really quickly. The six lies between you and success. Number one, everything matters equally. Talk about that. Sure. I mean, the fundamental principle we want people to use when deciding what their one thing is, is what is the activity that will give them the highest rate of return um, on their time, not necessarily their money. And so we use kind of an extreme version of Pareto's principle for that. Yeah. Um, the idea of the 80-20, 20% of what we do gives us 80% of the results we want. We want people asking, what's the 20%, the 20% until they get to one. And that way we're working with our number one priority. Everything doesn't matter equally. And we have to give our number one disproportionate focus and attention. Well said. Number two, multitasking. You take a pretty sharp point of view on the concept, the myth, if you will, of multitasking. Well, it's something, it's the entrepreneur's disease, right? If you're an entrepreneur, an executive, you've probably got amazing vision and creativity and you see all these possibilities. And when we have too much on our plates and we have it properly prioritized, we have this instinct of just kind of doing more than one thing at, at once. And it, we listed six reasons, but just to kind of sum it up, um, when you, you literally lower your IQ when you're multitasking, it takes you longer to do things and you make more mistakes. So I usually then take people off the hook and say, all right, you're going to multitask. People in Apple and Google are paid lots and lots of money to distract us with our digital devices. But when you've identified that number one, right, in that first step, try not to multitask while you're doing it, right? So at work, maybe you're preparing for content, Scott. That preparation time to deliver content through those channels might be your most important thing. Turn off your phone. Put it on Do Not Disturb just like you're in a movie theater, right? Or a, or a theater in New York where they would kick you out for doing it. Give it that same respect and see how far that takes you. Um, and I find that when you just create an island of focus, people start to get amazing results just from that. Six lies between you and success. Number one, everything matters equally. Two, multitasking. Jay, take us to three, a disciplined life. So another kind of lie we are told or we tell ourselves is we see people, um, I bet people look up to you, Scott, and they go, wow, he's got a podcast, he's got his TV show, he's got his authorship. I wish I was disciplined like Scott. And first and foremost, I think people misunderstand what discipline is. If you look it up, or if you ask your kids, they're gonna tell you it's punishment. Um, if you ask most adults, they're gonna describe what we call willpower. Yeah. They think it's this mental toughness. Um, discipline is actually training yourself to do something until it's habitual. So we talk about, you don't need to be a person of lots of discipline. You need to be a person of selected discipline. So I've identified my number one priority. For most professions, it's fairly repetitive. How do I make it a habit of doing that thing? And I'd heard lots and lots of things, 30 days, 21 days. Um, we spent a lot of time researching this. We found some research um, out of the Oh, gosh, the College of London in Australia um, in 2009, where on average, it takes 66 days to form a habit. So we've made it our 66-day challenge. You know you're number one. Let's make it a habit. Give it at least 66 days, which is two to three times as much time as most people give it. So give it a chance to get settled. You work for the habit, and then the habit works for you. That's what we talk about when we talk about discipline. And speaking of Will Call, you spend a fair amount of time talking about the power of, of willpower, uh, number four, willpower is always on will call. What does that mean? Okay, so you've heard the expression where there's a will, there's a way, right? 
Sure. It's, it's absolutely true. The problem is there's not always a will. When you look at the research around willpower and our ability to focus through distraction, actually focusing on something isn't putting a spotlight on it. It's actually making everything else go away. And it's incredibly draining in terms of just literally the physical energy in your body. And one of the big ahas when we looked at all the research for me is that it seems very clear that we have the most willpower early in the day. So we need to be doing our number one, whenever morning is for you, while we sleep at night, we tend to store more lichen in our, in our muscles. We have more of that energy naturally stored up and processed and ready to go. That's what actually is powering our brains to focus on that number one task. So in general, and I'm sure you've seen this in interviews, the most successful people have a great day before noon. So the whole wisdom here is you're not always able to focus. At times, our willpower fails us. Um, we see it with our diets. We see it with everything else. So start your day with your number one. You're most likely to say yes to it then, and then you can build a habit around it. Six lies between you and success. I think number five was my favorite chapter in the book, A Balanced Life, because you kind of debunked some of the myths around how difficult it is to have balance and what does balance mean? Talk about that. Okay, thank you. I love that chapter too, because as someone who's a dad, right, and a husband and a professional, you're like, wow, how do I get all of this in balance? And the fundamental viewpoint that Gary had as a hypothesis and we were able to validate is that one, balance is just a complete fabrication because most people see it as a destination we arrive at. I just want to balance life. So we imagine that we'll get everything perfectly so, and then, um, you know, our life feels comfortable. Um, the reality is that balancing is more like balancing on a bicycle or balancing on one foot. It's a verb. We have to actively be doing it. And we divide our world into the things in our life and the things in work. Work, if you're focused on one thing, by its very nature, it's going to be out of balance. There's going to be tons of brush fires. You're getting disproportionate time to your number one. That's going to create chaos. And in work, that's actually really healthy. You don't need balance there. But if you show that sort of neglect for your spiritual life, your physical health, your key relationships, your finances, they won't necessarily be waiting for you there or flourishing under that sort of limited um, attention. So we teach people to counterbalance um, around our health. If you go on a long trip um, that's for work and you're on a floor at some convention for six days running, you need to take some time off and get rebalanced, get caught up on your sleep, get caught up on your health. If we take regular counterbalancing actions, we never get to that place called burnout. So it's okay to be out of balance at work, in our regular life, right, the things that matter more, spirituality, health, relationships, constantly be counterbalancing. That's kind of the object lesson of the balanced life. In fact, uh, your co-author, Jay, Gary Keller, is quite vulnerable and transparent around how important balance is to him and how he's sort of artificially tried to overextend himself and the impact that's had on his career and his family and his health. I think it was so refreshing to hear him kind of lay it out there as to how he has to have balance or he can't even function, sleep. It's unusual. We know those entrepreneurs and executives that, oh, I can get by on three hours of sleep. And they seem to have this um, endless font of energy, right, that they can draw onto. Um, Gary wasn't blessed with that. Um, he had health issues. Um, he needs eight hours of sleep, so he can't neglect that for long without failing. So a lot of the principles that were his hypothesis that we had to go research were built around the fact that he couldn't give unlimited time to his work. So he had to get far more out of the hours he was giving 
instead of just trading more hours for it. So yeah, those physical limitations, and it's really cool to hear him, you know, self-made billionaire just being so open about it, that also helped shape a lot of this philosophy. I think it's one of the values of me evangelizing the book to our listeners and readers, because I think there's a myth in corporate America, often led by highly successful, high-achieving CEOs. They're often uber athletes and extreme athletes, and they can get by on three hours. That's probably debatable, because you see a high incident of blood pressure and stroke. But I think when the CEO models that kind of standard, people then think they have to match it. And I think it actually does a disservice to the culture. It perpetuates burnout. So I think uh, a heads up that you and Gary are giving every leader is also be careful what you model. It might work for you, but people will pay attention to that. And you're going to actually build a culture where people burn out because they're trying to be like you. Oh, and I actually had this coaching session with one of our employees who's making a first hire. And she was talking about our hourly, you know, we have flex hours and what are my philosophies? And I just said, be very careful what you lionize. If you start championing the fact that people have worked late, you're going to create a habit of people working late, not because they need to, but because they get praised for it. The reality is my expectations for our staff is I expect them to come into work during our business hours and get their job done. If it can't be done during those business hours, they either need better systems or more support or more people on board. Otherwise, they're just not working effectively. Um, and yeah, we can role model and we can also create a culture that's about throwing hours at work versus getting more out of our hours. And so as leaders, we want to role model it and we want to preach it. The well, right things. Well said, Jay. Sixth lie is big is bad. I, I've thought so much about this in terms of my own life, uh, kind of unpack this concept of big is bad. I know, and our, our publisher fought us on this one. He's been a legend, Ray Bard, in, in business publishing, published multiple million copy bestsellers, and we were fortunate to have him. He's like, Jay, Gary, this is like, like in the business self-help category. People don't think big is bad in that category. And I think both Gary and I had been on a journey long enough coaching people that when you're doing the right things, right, you know what to focus on. You're not multitasking when you do it. You've made it a habit. You're doing it at the right time so you can always do it consistently and you're counterbalancing. All those things start showing up. Results show up exponentially fast and it's terrifying. I've had so many successful people get terrified and go, I just want a small business. Oh, I just want to slow down. And what they have are poor models for what bid can look like. So a couple of big takeaways is one, we always want people imagining and thinking big, um, as big as we can possibly think for our lives. But the counterintuitive thing is we have to act small, right? We wanna have big, big goals. So that forces us to have great models for how we are productive, great leadership models, great personal habits, all of those things and great relationships, but you act small so you don't go crazy. A lot of people think big and they act big. And then they, they run out of steam really, really quickly. But it's just a different philosophy. So one, people get terrified of big and they have misconceptions because no one's modeled it for them. And the right model is to think big, but act small. And by small, we mean highly focused. Focus on that unique number one priority. And that will take you much farther than most people expect. Okay, so Jay, this is a great setup. The six lies between you and success as we talk about the point of the book, which is the one thing. I'd like for you just to riff for a few minutes on 
the concept of the one thing, why it's so important, why it's so highly correlated to people of enormous success in their life in terms of not just economics and income and professional success, but living their mission and their passion, uncovering their purpose. Just gonna take that for a few minutes and tell the audience what they need to know around how they can begin adopting the one thing in your life. And then we'll move to kind of the whole idea around focusing questions and, and that part of the book. Sure, sure. The, you kind of hinted at this earlier. There's something a little bit about the magic of timing that found us with this project. I think when we came out with this book, um, we were looking at a time of unprecedented change, right? Technology, um, the world is flat, all of those ideas. And in my personal experience, I mean, maybe every generation says this, I feel like there were more opportunities and in some ways more obligations than most people had ever um, had the, we haven't adapted yet to this much change in our lives and they're happening this rapidly. We have so many options and in, like as a parent, as a, maybe you have aging parents because we're living longer, all of those, we also have the obligations. So deciphering the priorities with all that noise is really difficult. And so most people see this book as both a, the timing of it is great. Like what we need is to simplify a little bit. That doesn't mean we need to lower our ambitions or think small, but by simplifying how we approach things, we are actually gonna get more done with less side effects. We'll get more done with more impact, but not all of the negative stuff, the stress that we normally feel. So I think that was just a big thing that happened to us. We were feeling it and had no idea how impactful that idea of, when you really know what you're saying yes to, the number one gift is you get to say no to everything else and it's easy. And the, the I'll steal from John Maxwell. I remember him saying um, when he said yes to his wife, he was very clear that he was saying no to everyone else. And I think our challenges with our work um, in our parenting and all the other roles that we do, we don't always make those yeses that clear. It's not an I do, right? I'm a writer. I have to say I do to every day sitting down to write and creating content. As a parent, right, I have to say I do to making sure I've carved out that time with my kids to make sure I'm teaching them how to think so they can get what they need when they need it. That's our philosophy of leadership, right? There's only a few things that really, really move the dial and we have to identify them so we can act on them. And that is kind of the magic. You know, when we know what we're really supposed to say yes to, man, it's just so liberating. We can let that other stuff sit we can say no to it, or we just know it doesn't matter as much. That to me is like the gift that this book has brought me. You know, I got to be a reader of it before it was written because I was learning from Gary and from the research, but it has changed mine and my family's life. Jay, I think this is one of the few books of the thousands that I've read across my career that I'll probably spend more time working on the book than I did reading the book because I have really blocked time out this week to actually oh, you know, decide what is my one thing and how am I gonna organize my days and life around it. You have a mantra in the book that you repeat dozens of times and it says, listen carefully to the audience to this, what's the one thing I can do such that by doing it, everything else will be easier or unnecessary? I'm gonna repeat it. And you, you, you repeat this phrase dozens of times in the book. What's the one thing I can do such that by doing it, everything else will be easier or unnecessary? Talk about that. Well, we're hardly the first person um, or authors to say that the size of our answer is determined by the size of our questions. And that question, we call it the focusing question, is a really big question. 
Um, Gary came by it um, kind of organically. He was coaching our top franchisees and our top business people in our organization. Um, he's always dedicated a few days a month to staying in touch with exactly what's happening in the field. And if you've done coaching, Scott, you know the rhythm um, with your executive coach is you at the end of the call or the end of the meeting, what will you get done between now and our next meeting? And there's a series of commitments that we make. And what Gary found is that his um, coachees, right, would say, okay, I'm going to do these three things. And they would often do some of them, but rarely did all of them, much less than number one. And out of frustration, he started making the list smaller until finally he was like, okay, Scott, if you can only do one thing this week, what's it going to be to move this forward on our goals? And to his surprise, when people only had one thing on their list, one, they all did it. So it has instant accountability. It's a yes or no. Did you do it? It's not no, but I did these other things. It's yes or no. And the really cool thing was they tended to do numbers two through five on their list anyway. It was a natural result of doing their number one. So he made that a core part of his leadership philosophy was to always identify the one action item in our world. And that's where that, that question organically came out of years of that coaching. So one, it's very powerful. Um, to my surprise, um, now having taught this to maybe 10,000 people, I thought people would struggle with their answer. Most people know the answer and they feel guilty for not doing it. Um, they're so busy, they're just not asking it. So when you ask them the question, most people will tell you really quickly what they think their one thing is. So that's the power. What's the one thing? Not five. The other key word is can do. It's not what you could, should, or would do in the future. It's what I can do right now because action gets us results. That feedback allows us to adjust. So we stay right there in the present. And then the rest of it is about Pareto's principle, such that by doing it, everything else becomes easier or unnecessary. It's the act of greatest leverage that we can do in our life to hit our goal right now. And it's amazing how clear people get about what that thing is or how close they get to the answer just by stopping to ask it. Uh, my favorite page in the book is page 150. I won't quiz you, but it's the page <laughs> where you talk about goal setting to the now. We're going to get there in a moment because I think it's a profound insight. The, the, uh, I'm going to come back to that. The book is full of dozens, if not hundreds, of insights and nuggets and pieces of wisdom, but you use them all to pound home this idea about the one thing. Jay, what advice would you give our viewers and our listeners around the process they can undertake today to begin to identify their one thing? I, I imagine everybody's got something they're working on, lots of great ideas, bursting with creativity, and they're kind of imploding under where do they start. If they're like me, they're doing seven things with B quality versus one <laughs> or two things with A plus quality. And your book has really inspired not just people, but my team to say, Scott, you've got to let you know, the radio program go if you want to have the next book be a blockbuster or whatever it is. What, what structure, what have you learned that you could get people started with helping them identify their one thing? So hopefully when you read that question twice, some people listening to this immediately had an answer. The one thing maybe as a parent or as a spouse or professionally or as a leader. And they knew that that answer was that thing that if they were doing it, they would be having far better results than they are today. So the first step is identify what your one thing is. Because if you don't know it, your one thing is figuring that out. So having that in hand, an answer, and it's an activity, not a state of being. If you want to reduce stress, that's not an out, that's an outcome. That's not yeah. an activity. 
So our goal is I'm going to meditate. I'm going to meditate for X hours a week or whatever. So the next thing that I do, we call it time blocking, is that you put that commitment on your calendar. It doesn't exist unless it's on your calendar. And our calendar becomes our boss. We just follow our calendar because our calendar reflects our priorities. So let's just go with the meditation thing. I'm going to meditate, let's call it five minutes a day. The minimum, the smallest possible domino using our metaphor to start getting momentum and building that habit. You don't start with two hours. You start with the, something you know you can accomplish and you time block that early in the day. And then you just start protecting and living those time blocks. I think most people on this call have had a period in their life. Maybe they have to go all the way back to school when they're studying for their final exams or whatever, or they're preparing to run a marathon or something that was so important everything else in their schedule revolved around it. I know what those times are. This is how we're playing right now. You're making a stand around that time block. In our experience and in the research we share in the book, when people identify their activity and then do this extra step of navigating their time about when and where they're going to do it, which is a calendar invite in my world, world they're three times more likely to achieve their goal. So it's not terribly complicated. We said it was the simple truth, right? And some people underestimate it because it's not complex or sophisticated. Identify that key activity, put it on your calendar, hopefully before noon, as early as possible, and start building a habit of doing it and make a stand around that. You'll look up a couple months later, 66 days, 10 weeks, and you should have found a rhythm around that. And then maybe you can add the next thing or make that a bigger time block because you want to do more content or more meditation or whatever it is. But Think big, act small, and that first small act is that getting it on your calendar, start living that like you're number one. It's amazing what comes from just that simple process I just described. In fact, to take it a step further, Jay, you and your co-author Gary spent a lot of time talking about time blocks and also your planning system, right? You know, what is your system allowing you to accomplish, to earn? You also talk about the power of goal setting, not just writing down your goals, but the exponential return that comes from sharing your goals with people, kind of your accountability partners. Talk a little bit about that concept and we'll come back to this idea of goal setting for the now, of sharing your goals with other people and the increase likely you'll get from that. So there's like, there's contradictory research around this. So I wanna be really clear about what we mean. Sharing your goals does not mean, hey, I've committed to run a marathon and posting that to Facebook. There's actually good research that says that when people post things like that to social media, they get so much validation from all of their friends saying, you know, you got this girl, whatever that is, that they actually don't ever go through with the actual activity. Huh. So when we talk about sharing it, you look up and you tell the people um, in your world who have power to keep you from doing your one thing, right? So if you work from home, maybe you're negotiating with your spouse and your kids. If you work in the office, you're talking to your executive assistant or your team, hey, this hour, right, this hour that I'm going to be t from eight to nine every morning, I'm going to close my door, I'm going to hang the do not, unless something's burning on fire or dying, please don't break in, here's why. And you share the outcome in terms of the benefit to the team, the family, whatever that instance is, not just for you. Tell them how important it is. What's amazing when you empower that group, the people who have the power to break through that door and disturb your focus a lot of times they will be more true to it than you will. Um, I remember my old assistant, Teresa, for years, if she saw me violating my time block, 
she would literally grab stuff out of my hands and say, go back to work. And I was like, I am working. She goes, you're not doing your work. Go back to work. If you don't write, you get fired. If you get fired, I get fired. So go back to work. And she became one of the people who was helping me commit. And as a team, that's huge. And I will just make this one final caveat. As managers, as leaders, there's no one who disturbs people's time blocks and focus more than the managers themselves. We write about this very briefly, but most managers are thinking in 15-minute increments, a conversation with this person, getting this person to, to buy into the vision, and they're constantly interrupting and dropping in on people. We have to give our people time to execute on the vision, and we need to honor their time blocks too. So build a culture where people can say no, or at least later, not now, so that they can do that and they don't have to wait till their kids are asleep and work at home, which is what a lot of employees do. So as the leaders, we can role model this and we can also honor it for our people. So Jay, in our final few minutes, I wanna drill down into my favorite part of the book here I've mentioned is page 150, goal setting for the now. And this may delight or horrify you, but I'm actually gonna rip the page out of the book because I think it's so powerful. I'm actually gonna put it in my own, my own planner because it's, it's I it. I'm kind of embarrassed that at age 51 now, I'm kind of learning this concept, but goal setting from the now, someday goal, five-year goal, one-year goal, monthly goal, weekly goal, daily goal, right now. I, I want you to take a few minutes and talk about why this is so powerful. Kind of why have I ripped it out of the book? I'm gonna walk around with this and make sure that I'm kind of living this principle. Walk us through this concept. All right. One, I love that you just destroyed our book because you're trying to live it. And that it's is our book. goal. <laughs> and if you saw like the design of the book, we have all the, the fake pencil marks because Gary and I, we write in our books. We take notes in our books. We interact with them because we're learning. So one, I love that. So thank you. My publisher may be horrified, but I love what you just did. Um, many, many times I was in a room with Gary and he's coaching someone or he's working with someone. And at the end of the meeting, and I wasn't, and now I see the pattern I didn't then, he would be so crystal clear about what they had to leave the room and do. So when we were working on this book, um, I got him to describe that process. And that process is goal setting to the now. So here's the challenge. Most really, truly life-changing things don't happen today, this week, or this month. They actually take a period of years. We actually commissioned a study of some of the most successful businesses of all time. I think we did 50 and on average, before anyone recognized they were great companies, they had already been toiling away in quiet you know, solitude for eight to 12 years. So there's almost always this period. Nobody's in overnight success. So great success takes time. And our challenge is if I look up and say in five years, I wanna be CEO of this company, or five years, I want to be number one in market share in my industry. How do we behave this week to be in alignment with that goal? So goal setting to the now is to me, you know, the great wisdom of begin with the end in mind gives us process for that. We get clear about where we want to be someday. Based on that, we ask the question, what's the one thing that I can accomplish in five years such that by doing it, I will feel it's easier and necessary to get to that big yeah. goal, right? Yeah. What's the one thing I can accomplish in five years? You write that down. That's a little bit of crystal ball stuff, right? That's five years out. And in our technology-driven world, that's kind of crazy. But here's how it works from there. Based on that five-year goal, you ask the question, what would I have to accomplish this year to feel like I was absolutely on track for that five-year goal? And then you write that activity down or that outcome down. And then you go back again. What would I have to do this month to be on track for my year? What would I have to be on, 
to do this week to be on track for my month. You say, oh, I'm moving it backwards. You don't ask, what do I have to do this week to be on track for my five-year goal? Nobody can bridge that gap. But when you systematically move backwards in time, someday, five years, one year, one month, one week, one day, right now, it's amazing how much clarity we have working backwards from a goal. And the clearest I could explain how this kind of works in our minds, if I asked you, Scott, how did you get to be sitting in the chair you are today? You would tell me about a series of milestones in your life. It might go all the way back to that teacher who believed in you. And then this position and that position, how you got to be marketing chief, now executive vice president, and boom, you're there. And in your mind, it's a straight line because they're all connected. We're going in the future and trying to build that straight line back to today. And it's an amazingly powerful thought exercise. Jay, the book is profound. Honestly, I, I know a thing or two about books. I've written a few. I've had a best-selling book myself. This book deserves its credit as a bestseller across all the platforms. I actually think you could develop a, a, a training process that Franklin Covey could teach around the, the goal setting to the now. I, I ripped this out because I want everyone to go buy this book. On page 150 of the hundreds of nuggets, it's going to change how I spend my day today because there are some goals I want to accomplish, ideally one goal. And I know one thing that I can do right now after this interview that I can actually build some momentum on. So I thank you for the gift of the book. There's one final concept I want to touch on, and that's sort of um, the, the danger, the risk of something you call sort of, I think it is the, the, the present bias, right? It's sort of the, the, the desire to have immediate gratification and return now versus later. Talk about the correlation between successful professionals, successful leaders who can resist this sort of present bias and be thinking about a bigger, longer, better reward down the road. So um, the very, it's just perfect, perfect that you ask that because when you do something like a goal setting to the now, you get a much clearer sense of like if you were, it was a compass direction, you know, from Austin, Texas, I want to get to New York. So I'm going to be heading north by northeast, roughly. I actually don't have a map. So call it north by northeast to get there. What that gives you is a very clear sense that if that's my destination, going to New Orleans is not an option. Going to Miami is not an option. And certainly going to LA is not on the way. So anything that's not on the path is clearly a is something, it's a, it's a diversion, it's, it's a distraction. And we actually had a whole chapter we were gonna write about this concept. It ended up getting distilled into a few, few uh, paragraphs, but this idea that the low hanging fruit is a lie, that was gonna be a whole chapter. Because unless you have this compass guiding you, even as business people, we see, wow, if we develop this product or do that podcast or write that book, that's gonna be a clear winner. And what we don't realize without doing this other exercise is we may be heading in the exact opposite direction away from our goals. Yes, it'll make money this month and help our ROI or our stock price this year, but it's not actually getting us closer to our actual goal. So that present bias, that low hanging fruit can be deadly if you're not very clear about where you're going. I hope that was what you were going for. That's where I went for on the present bias. No, it's great, Jay. I, I think it leaves more also for the reader to think about how are they disciplined, focused, maturing in their own priorities, not to grab the immediate win, and but think about, you know, can the bigger, longer win be better? It's a great advice for salespeople, right? For people in the real estate field. To that point, check your humility. Uh, you and Gary co-wrote this book. 
You're, you're, you're part of the leadership team, of course, at Keller Williams. What correlation would you make between the success that your firm has had globally, you know, a, 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 a the leader in the industry, and your associates, I'm guessing, reading this book and, and building their one thing. Is it a required read for associates? H how do you integrate the concepts of the one thing into the culture at Keller Williams? Um, it's it's a, always a journey, right, for us that we have 180,000 independent contractors. So we, there's no such thing as required reading. There's only recommended with independent contractors. Um, but we definitely have built it into a part of our culture. And we have lots of rituals that reflect it. Yeah. So when we do goal setting, we have a thing called a GPS and everyone is taught to do a one-year goal setting process that's in it's very much compatible with everything you just described. Um, and our leadership teams, we do weekly, they call them 411 meetings. And guess what? That one piece of paper, every employee has their annual goals based on that, what they're going to do that month and based on that, what they're going to do that week. It's the same process we just described, but we get to meet with them for a few minutes each week to make sure that they're still on their right priorities versus waiting for some annual review. So we baked it into the culture of the company and Gary wrote it and I believe it, when we look at the things that we've done truly well, they've all been a product of either consciously or unconsciously following this process. We've gone all in on something that could have a really true impact. We've rolled the dice, we put all of our eggs in one basket to make something truly great versus doing a lot of stuff. And my, as a leader, this is one of the biggest journeys I've been on this year, having tripled my staff is that when people understand their real value proposition, they say, no, you know, you would love for me to do that, but I can bring you the most value by doing this. So when we get clear, really clear on this, everyone gets a chance to shine. Your employees know what their one gift is and how it connects to the business goals. And they start empowering themselves to say no, because they know they can bring more value and you start to see it. So if you can build a few building blocks around the culture of the, the strong nose because we want to say yes to the right things and we focus on teaching people how to prioritize their time around the right things, it really does blossom into some magnificent stuff. Jay, let's end the conversation. Talk a bit about your website and your podcast. How can people continue the conversation with you beyond today's interview, buying your book? What else is going on with you? Um, well, they don't even have to buy the book. I would love it if they do and tear that page out, page 150. Um, but if you go to the one thing.com with the number one, there's everything about um, the tools for this book, our free training around the book, um, lots of downloads to help them work on their purpose. And there's even one around, I think it's a kick-ass guide to goal setting where we walk people through an exercise in goal setting to the now. So there's all kinds of resources on our website and wherever they listen to podcasts, if they look for the one thing, um, Jeff, my partner in our training company, um, hosts a wonderful podcast around living this idea of our faucet. Nobody needs a new goal setting method, right? Franklin Covey and others have nailed that. What we need is a way to have an ongoing relationship with our goals, which is what all of our tools are about. And he's living that on the podcast. Hey, so when my gig doesn't work out, I think I might choose to become a realtor for your firm because I feel like you would set me up for success and hold me accountable. So stay tuned for that call, okay? <laughs> you got it. I'll be happy to help you out there. I do know a little bit about real estate after 18 years. There's some truth to that. Jay, thanks for joining us. Great conversation. Highly recommend The One Thing. Appreciate you joining us, and we'll have you back on Leadership when you and Gary uh, publish your next book, whatever that will be about. Thank you so much. It's a privilege to be here.
Thanks, Jay. The honor was ours. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you back here next week with another amazing guest. If you're not subscribing to Franklin Covey's leadership newsletter, visit franklincovey.com. Click on the On Leadership tab. It's complimentary. comes out via email every Tuesday, both as an email newsletter that includes a downloadable tool and a blog from me about that interview. You also, as I said earlier, can consume it on all of your favorite podcast platforms. Just Google On Leadership. Subscribe your friends, your family, your parents, your colleagues, everybody. It has now become the world's largest leadership newsletter worldwide. We're glad you joined us, and we'll see you again here next week for On Leadership.